in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. Maybe you guys have noticed this, that sometimes the good times, sometimes the revival, sometimes the excitement when you're coming to know Christ can set you up for disappointment a decade or two down the road. So sometimes the good times, the revival, the maybe a college or a high school experience, or maybe in your 20s, you had this uh, incredibly intimate connection with Jesus and the scriptures, uh, and then time goes on, right? Humans, I think we are, we are montage creatures, right? So you're watching a movie, and then they do the montage, right, where they put the sort of dorky instrumental music on, and they do all these quick snips from, like, one, one scene to the next where this character is becoming better at something, or Rocky Balboa, right, is training for his great fight or whatever it is. And we are meant to get excited and moved in those short periods of time. You can really move somebody in 10 minutes or maybe in six months or a year. But the Christian life is one of duration, right? It's a marathon. And a lot of people can't keep that kind of high revival energy up. Actually, history has proven uh, no revival uh, lasts for longer than a generation. So the, the, the heat sort of cools. So sometimes that excitement sets the stage uh, for disappointment later. So the author of Hebrews, who we talked about last week, uh, if, if you want to see some of the debate as to who might, may have written it, it's the only unnamed letter in the New Testament. Uh, it may be Priscilla, which would be interesting, having a female author of one of the letters in the New Testament. It may be Apollos, maybe Luke, uh, it may be Clement. There's a few other uh, people who may have written it, but we're moving on. If you want to hear more about that, if, if that's your jam, then you can go find the video on Facebook from last week. Uh, so the author is writing to a downcast community that's kind of sad and losing heart, and many of them are actually abandoning the faith and going back to Judaism. Some of them are. Uh, 20 years, 25 years earlier, it was the resurrection of Jesus. And they were thinking maybe the whole world would convert quickly. Now, 2,000 years later, a third of the world claims that Jesus is Lord. So they weren't necessarily wrong, but in their time, it seemed like it was, kind of, it was a disappointing uh, downswell of belief. So many in their community never did convert. Many did, but many never did. And one scholar has written that they are viewed by their families as having abandoned their heritage. Here they were Jews, they're Hebrews, right? And then they became Christians, or they they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But many of their family members would not have. And so now they're seen as traitors to Israel, that they are cutting themselves off from community. And they might be wondering now, 25 years or so after the resurrection, they might be wondering... Did I take the right step? Family grievances can take a lot out of you. When you have, when you have um, arguments or dissension with your family, it can take a lot out of you. And now it's been two to three decades, and following Jesus has brought this suffering where they're having dissension. They're not uh, in a great relationship with a lot of their families. They're cut off, and they're looking around their Christian churches, which every day are becoming increasingly Gentile, right? So here they are, they're Jews. They didn't even associate with non-Jews before, and they, that's where their identity is. And now they're looking around at their church, and Greeks are starting to call more and more of the shots, these people they wouldn't even associate with before. So they're cut off from their family. Greeks, the, the Gentiles seem to be taking over. It, you know, Christianity, of course, is just Judaism with a Messiah. Uh, but after about the year 100, it became a majority Gentile religion and has never, never gone back. So they're living through that change of watching the Jewish identity of their religion go away. And even worse, 
Judaism is a recognized religion by Rome, and there's a certain safety, a stamp there. Uh, basically, Rome made all of their subjects convert to worshiping the emperor, except for the Jews, because the Jewish religion predated even the founding of Rome. So Rome was like, everyone else has to drop their gods and worship the emperor. But the Jews, you know, you guys were doing your thing for 500 years before we even became a little town. So you guys can just keep on, because clearly there's something okay there. There's something going on. So the Jews had a recognized religion, but now as Christianity started to be recognized as its own thing, they were being persecuted. So the Jews, all you know, these family members who were rejecting the Christians, the Jews were okay. Christians were being persecuted and exiled from their cities. And people are like, well, I've got a business. I have a trade. I have a house. I can't get kicked out of my city. Did I make the wrong call? And so the letter to the Hebrews is written to this group that's undergoing a a constant temptation to, um, one scholar writes, to de-emphasize, conceal, neglect, abandon, and in crisis reject and deny the distinctively Christian dimension of their faith. So we here, of course, are not Hebrews. Most of us are not coming from a Jewish background. But a very similar thing has been happening in our society, and it's why I think 1 Corinthians has been dethroned as the letter that has more relation to our society than ever. I think Hebrews uh, has more to do with our society than ever because 20 to 30 years ago, our country, our, our culture was very different. 20 to 30 years ago, you could not hold public office without being a regular church-going Christian. I don't know if you guys know this, that Bill Clinton went to church every week, right? Like he was the last, uh, Bill Clinton and then George Bush, the last two presidents that used to attend church uh, regularly. Um, You couldn't hold public office without that being the case. And now it's kind of a knock against you if you take your faith seriously for different leadership positions. Uh, 20 to 30 years ago, the majority of our culture held the same views on some of the more sensitive topics, uh, like sexuality and other things. Um... As Christians, they, though they might not have been church-going, they might not have been believers, but just their general view about life was quite Christian in that way, in terms of ethics. In 2000, many of you were alive then, and uh, adults even, remembering these years, 60% of Americans that regularly attended church, 60% in the year 2000. Today, it's 41%. Okay, so this is a free fall. For so long... People said, well, it's interesting that Europe is slowly going through the secularization. You know, America is just different. We, maybe we're exceptional. Maybe there's something different here because our church attendance is staying really high. And then it's like in 20 years, the U.S. is like, wait, 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 Europe, like, let's quick catch up to what you've been doing for the last 80 years. We're going to try to do it in 20. Um, so we've watched a, a full fifth of America stop attending church just in the last 20 years. I remember I had you guys raise your hands last week. I said... Uh, and you don't have to do it now, but I had said, uh, raise your hands if you know somebody, a close friend who has left the faith in the last five years. And almost every hand went up. And I said, raise your hand if you know an adult person who's converted to Christianity, a friend of yours who's converted to Christianity in the last five years. And I don't think a single hand went up. So that's kind of the, the feeling we're in now. And it can be discouraging, especially when we're remembering the revival days of the early 2000s and we're remembering the excitement. So now... To be a Christian is a liability. You, know, that you, you see this you know, when they elect certain people, certain judges, certain CEOs. They say, well, can we really hire this person to that position? Can they be considered fair given their Christian religion? And every one of you here, even down to middle school age, is watching your friends uh, deconstruct. It's kind of the new thing in the last five years. It's sort of cool 
to deconstruct, right? To walk away from your faith, to walk away from your tradition. Uh, it's cool to adopt and take on uh, sexual identities that literally no human society in all of recorded history has explored. And if you don't partake in this kind of activity, you're sort of old, you're sort of a fuddy-duddy, you're kind of behind the times, uh, or worse even, maybe a bigot. Uh, just as a side note, man, I would love to see people deconstruct other things, like their relationship to consumerism. You know, uh, Google and Facebook will let people down every day. They'll treat your data willy-nilly and everything, but no one's walking away from Google, right? Um, people, politicians will let people down every week, but no one is pulling away from the civic process and being engaged in their society. But the church, like any institution, also fails people and also is imperfect. But people, for some reason, then with the church, are walking away forever. But they're not walking away from their, uh, their consumer um, tastes, their fan bases, their political engagement. People are walking away from the church, and they don't realize that they're not actually being original in the least. They're just following a massive secularization trend that's been happening in the West. The ones who truly buck the system are the ones who keep swimming against the current. So uh, people who are swimming against the current of a river feel that strain on their muscles. And it can be really tempting to stop, right? You're swimming against it, and it can be really tempting to stop. And when you finally do stop, you feel that peace, right? When you've been pushing, and you've been doing an exercise that's really difficult, and then you stop, your muscles reward you and say, ah, that's, that's it. Like, that's the feeling we wanted to go for. And there's a lot of people doing that right now. That's what they're doing in their faith by deconstructing. They're sort of stopping. They're, they're not swimming against the current, right? To be a Christian in, in this country, not, I'm, not that I'm saying this is how it should be, but to be a Christian used to mean you were swimming with the current. But then now to be a Christian means to swim against it, and it's hard, right? And so people have this desire to stop, and then what happens is they do stop. They stop attending church, stop going to Bible study, stop reading scripture, stop praying, whatever it is. They start to kind of pull out of the life of faith. And they think... As soon as they stop, they get this reward, and they, they say, they look around, and they're like, well, I'm kind of in the same spot that I was before. For the first few minutes, they're like, I'm the same person I always was. I'm just deconstructing. I'm pulling out of this race. I'm pulling out of this difficult path of swimming against the current. And they're like, ha, to all of my naysayers who said I shouldn't do this, I'm in the same spot I was before. But you know what six months farther out brings, or a year farther out. They might be an entire continent downstream. Right? So when you first stop, you think, I'm in the same spot. But you wait six or 12 months. So I plead with you guys one thing. This isn't in my notes, but I have watched a number of people, so many people pull out of the Christian life. Uh, not necessarily associated with Capital City, just from being a Christian you know, for the last 20 years. I've seen so many people leave. And oftentimes, I'm not gung-ho enough about getting together with them, loving them, um, getting coffee with them, just sitting and pleading with them to stay in the life of faith. And I think, oh, well, you know, maybe the Spirit's doing something, or I'm sure there's other people in their life, or I'm sure, I don't know, something else might happen. And almost invariably, almost the same thing happens every time. I get coffee with them finally six months or a year later, and it doesn't seem so bad. Like, maybe, maybe they'll come back. And so I think, oh, it's going to be okay. Uh, and then, you know, life gets busy, and I might get coffee with them again six or 12 months later. And by then, they're not going to come back to church ever. That's, that's a decision that's well made. And so I'm kind of, I'm like, geez, did I make a mistake here? I, I should have, here I thought it was good. They were just sort of taking a little bit of time to heal or recoup, and they'd be back. And all of a sudden, a year later, they're like, nope, they're half continent downstream now, and I missed my chance. Those decisions have been made, and I wasn't there to help and to pray 
and to encourage. And so they're sort of, that's, that's it, right? So then I, then I start praying for them, but it's kind of, it's, it's been too, too long, right? It's been too late. Have you guys felt some of this happen? Is anyone, like, I'm seeing, yeah, some, some nodding heads, raised hands. I get coffee with them six months or 12 months later, and now they're questioning if they're even a Christian at all and if they ever believed it in the first place. Uh, so I plead with you guys, as you watch people start to stop swimming, um, don't wait six or 12 months to just occasionally keep up with your friends. Pray for them daily. Get coffee with them regularly or whatever your jam is. You know, if you go bowling or whatever you do to get together with your friends, do it more often. Pray for them and love them because once those six or 12 months have gone by, it's often, you know, imagine swimming upstream from Mississippi all the way back to Minnesota, right? It's not, it's not going to happen a lot of times. But if you don't stay in their lives, that's what happens. Just the river takes them. All right, find my spot in my notes here. Um, so this is where the Hebrew Christians find themselves, kind of like the American church often finds itself now. Uh, many have lost that zeal and that fire, and they're watching their fellow Christians retreat back to Judaism. They're like, man, this is hard. We're rejected. My Jewish family's sitting tight, rejecting me, but you know, they're sitting tight while I'm being persecuted. You know, my business is being acquired and just sort of taken over by Rome, uh, or we're being killed. You know, I'm out. I didn't sign up for this 20, 25 years ago, and everything was new and exciting. And it's to this audience, maybe more similar uh, to many of us in church today, that Hebrews was written. Uh, there are these admonishments all the way throughout. One of the commentaries I was reading put them all in a list, and the writer is telling them, hey, don't drift away uh, by ignoring such a great salvation. Uh, don't harden your hearts. Uh, don't fall short of the rest that God promised to his people. Don't fall away, uh, because in falling away, you crucify the Son of God all over again. Don't trample the Son of God underfoot, uh, and don't refuse the one who speaks from heaven. Uh, and there's more. There's just all of these encouragements and then all these warning passages not to fade away. The author then reminds the listeners in the beginning of Hebrews that Jesus is the crux and the center of history and that the entire Old Testament leads up to him. So he's saying, don't retreat back to Judaism. The entire Old Testament was written under the understanding that it was not the end, right? The entire Old Testament was written with this sort of partial flavor to it, that someday a better covenant is coming. Someday a Messiah is coming. Someday the true Israel is coming. Someday, someday, someday the nations will come and, and worship in Israel. So he's like, don't go back to Judaism because Judaism itself recognized that something new was coming. And that has come in Jesus. So uh, we open then, I mean, we've been opening here, but in terms of the text, we're going to look at just Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Now, this is actually the most literary high Greek in the entire New Testament, these four verses, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. It's maybe not just, it's not as beautiful in English in translation, but if you were a Greek reader and you had been reading Plato and Aristotle and Homer your whole life, and then you went to read most of the New Testament, you'd say, oh, wow, like this is, this is a very different flavor because most of the New Testament is just common language. It's the language people used on the market and in the street or in the market, on the street. And isn't that funny? The, the, sorry. The way that we use in and on in our language is so funny. Like you can be in a car, but you're on a bus, right? And we get all these prepositions. It's this, people from other countries just find them absolutely bonkers. Uh, so I just ran into that myself. In the market, on the street. Um, yeah, so this is a, amazing language here. It's the, the most beautiful and poetic Greek in the entire New Testament. So let me read it in English here, and then we'll work through it. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Uh, There was a scholar who once said in the middle of the 20th century, in talking about Jesus, he's not a Trinitarian Christian scholar, but he said, regarding Jesus, he said, we could either have the humanity of Jesus without the pre-existence of him, or we could have the pre-existence of Jesus that he was in the beginning with God without the humanity. There is absolutely no way of having both. So he's saying we could have Jesus as a human or Jesus as God. We can't have both. Remember that attack against our faith as we start going through this. I think Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, as well as John 1 and Colossians 1 are the most clear in the entire Bible and unabashedly goes full on. No, he is fully human and he is fully the preexistent God. So uh, as he's the, as the writer, so some, sometimes I say he for the writer. Uh, it could be Priscilla. It could be one of these number of guys. Sometimes I say he because the writer in chapter 10 self-identifies, but it could be a pseudonym. could be a female writer. But the writer uses a masculine participle that only a man would use. So if you ever hear me slip and say he for the writer, it's because whether it's a woman or a man, the, the writer is assuming uh, a male authorship in order to be uh, accepted here. So sometimes you'll hear me say he. Priscilla could be the author, but sometimes I'll slip and say he wrote it. Uh, So uh, fellow Hebrews, the writer is saying, we had a rich and wonderful tradition. God sent messenger after messenger. Uh, Did you know that in Greek, the word messenger is literally just angel. It's angelos. So our word angel, we've turned it into this other thing, but it just means a messenger from heaven. So we've had messenger after messenger, angel after angel, Moses, Elijah, but God is done sending messengers. He now sent his son. And there is only one finite or definitive verb in this entire paragraph. And then there are seven dependent clauses. So if you guys remember from like your fifth grade English, like there's like your finite verbs where you actually are saying something like so-and-so ran to the market while tripping over their shoes, while wishing they had a snack, while, and those are like, those would be like dependent clauses, like while or by or whatever. Uh, And this is a really interesting paragraph and that even though the writer manages to make it so beautiful. It's just got one strong verb, and the rest is all hanging off of it. So it says that God sent his son. That's the one main verb, that God sent uh, his son, or spoke through his son. Then there's all these dependent clauses. It says, who is the heir of all things? He's the receiver of all things. It says, the second one is that the entire world was created through him as in through God's speech. So the writer is assuming that people, that the the readers are already Christian and they're already on that same wavelength, like in John 1, right? Where uh, Jesus is the divine logos, the word of God. He was in the beginning with God um, and that he took on flesh as Jesus. So he's saying the entire world was created through Jesus. So this is a bit of a more theological sermon. You guys know I like narrative sermons, but today we're just diving right in to the theology. Jesus is called the Word of God or the Logos, and that's why he was with God in the beginning, because you can never have a mute God who can't speak. 
God always was with his word, and his word, his logos, is Jesus. And then he sends his word, he sends Jesus as his word, his wisdom, his logos, his son, to live as a human here. And so the writer is saying the entire world was created through God's speech, which is through Jesus here. The third dependent clause is that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the kind of the shining of God. Just like when Moses sees God on the mountain, it's so bright that he comes back to the Israelites shining just like God was, and that he's already, just from the reflection, he's so bright that he has to wear a veil so that the Israelites can't see him. And in the same way, Jesus is this radiance. He's this shining of the glory of God. Paul and John say the same sorts of things, that uh, all things were created by him, Jesus, for him, and in him, all things hold together. The author of Hebrews is saying the same thing here. The fourth dependent clause is one of my favorites. It says that Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature, the exact stamp of his nature. And that Greek word is actually character uh, or character, depending on where you put it in the sentence. So we get the word character from it. So he is the exact uh, character, the exact imprint, the stamp of his nature. And it's the word you use when you make a coin, when you mint a coin. So let's say you had you know, Julius Caesar or some big emperor or ruler. They would make a currency that all the empire could use. And by stamping their face on it, it was sort of assuring that the economy of Rome or whatever empire would recognize it. It's as if you were making a trade with Caesar next to you signing the banknote. And so when you, you make this coin, you put your face on it as a symbol of authority. And here, this is what the author is saying, is that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. But here's the thing. This is interesting. When you make a coin, it's not actually Caesar on the coin. It's just a, it's just a, a representation of his image, right? Within the world of money. And in the same way, Jesus, it says in, in Philippians 2, that he emptied himself of something, right? It's hard to talk about this without accidentally saying something that goes against the Trinity. So sometimes I just like to quote the verse and say, he was in the beginning with God, he was God, but he somehow emptied himself of something in order to take on humanity and to take on human flesh. So just like Caesar can't be fully in a coin, but a part, he can empty himself and stamp his image into that coin. In the same way, Jesus is the full embodiment of God, but he's also emptied in, in a certain way. And he's, he's taken on flesh as a human, living in our world within our rule. So uh, one of the best descriptions that I ever heard of the Trinity, or at least of how Jesus takes on flesh, is like when an author is writing a memoir and they write themselves into their book. Now, it's not actually them in the book. It's just words on a paper, right? But within the world of the book, that's fully the author, right? So within the diminished world of the book, the book is lesser than the entire world. But within the diminished confines, the sort of the rules of the book, the author is fully present. And so our world is a diminished version of God's full reality. But God fully entered into our world. He wrote himself into this story. He wrote himself into this book in his fullness as far as that goes. So Jesus is the full representation of God in our world. He's the stamp. He's this sort of coined image of God. The fifth one, it says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So the entire universe was created through him. And this is something we miss is that it says that it's sustained by him as well. So the the Jewish worldview in the Old Testament has this concept of God not only creating, but actually sort of holding up and sustaining. That every 
Every you know, cycle of the electron around the nucleus is all God doing it. Whereas we kind of take a lot, in the way that we think about the world, we take it from the deists. The deists uh, weren't Christians, but like Thomas Jefferson is a classic example of a deist. They imagined that God maybe set up the world and like wrote all the code, so to speak, and then just set it spinning, right? Like they build the program, and then they just hit start, and then God just sort of sits back and lets it all happen. And though we don't mean to do this because it's not biblical, we often take this view that God sort of built the world and built all the natural rules, and then he just sort of clicked go on his you know, divine program and let everything else just happen according to laws, except for the rare exception when he pulls off a miracle. Uh, but the, the Bible is much more clear about God actually holding almost like a knit fabric. He's sort of got his hands in the whole thing at the whole time, and he is breathing life into the universe with every movement, right? Every movement of the electrons, every combination, every you know, chemical equation, it's him doing all of it, not just setting up rules and then letting it run on its own, like a program. And the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is the one who does this, not only the one through whom it's created, not only the one that it's all going to as a sort of inheritance, but he is the one that upholds it by the word of his power. All right, so God has sent his wisdom, his logos, his word, his son. But what does that have to do with us? Then it's, So it says this. This is the sixth clause. It says, after making purification for sins, he, the son, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So after making purifications, purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. On high. So what the author is doing here is imagining a crowning ceremony. So pull from like your, you know, the kids' books that you read or the fantasy books that you read. Um, pull up some sort of crowning ceremony. I don't know if there's like a Narnian or, you know, Lord of the Rings or some sort of, you know, Star Warsian's crowning ceremony that you can pull up in your brain. Uh, but this is the Im- image he's going for. That this is what we ought to see at the opening of Hebrews as they as they open the curtains to this play. It's Jesus sitting down at the right hand of the Father after having made purification for sins. He was with God in the beginning. He came, he, he came among us here. He died on the cross, and now he's sitting down at the right hand of the Father. And the last one, it says, the seventh clause, uh, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So the author is opening this book, and I'm pulling in themes from the whole book, otherwise we couldn't make this opening paragraph fully make sense, uh, because we don't know their, their context uh, like the author does. But he opens this book by saying, truly remember Jesus. You're falling back to Judaism. It was those prophets who looked forward to the Messiah. You're falling back to the law as delivered by angels. Jesus is better than the angels. He, w- he created them, and he is exalted above them. You're falling back to God the Father, but you have met him here in the exact imprint of his image in God the Word, God the Son, in Jesus. He goes on to say uh, later in the book, you know, you're being persecuted by your Jewish relatives. So were all the prophets who went before you. They were killed by their own people. In the famous chapter on Hebrews 11, a lot of people who don't know Hebrews do know Hebrews 11 when it runs through all the heroes of faith, the hall of faith. He's saying, hey, you're being persecuted by your Jewish relatives. Look at all these people who got killed by their Jewish relatives, right? You're not outside the will of the Old Testament. You're where the Old Testament is going. You're being persecuted by Rome. Well, guess what? The Son of God is here, and he will rule all nations with a rod and staff of iron. And as I've said many times here, it's one of my favorite examples from history, 
that here they were being persecuted by Rome, but still today in the non-Christian world, Rome is one of the, the most understandable symbols of Christianity, right? Even though we're not Catholic or anything, Rome still bears this symbol of, even though they were once the persecutors of Christianity, the killers of Paul and Jesus and Peter, now they're often seen as the beacon, the home of Christianity. He's saying, don't forget Jesus. Don't forget how big a deal he is, the eternal son of God, through whom every atom in the universe was created and sustained. Don't fall back on the Old Testament because Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. He covered it. He, he filled it up. That's what the word fulfill means. It's to fill full, right? We often don't connect the actual roots of words. To fulfill something means to fill it full. So there was this expectation of the Old Testament. Jesus fulfilled it. He filled it to the full to where it was overflowing and it couldn't contain him anymore. Now we have the wisdom, the word, the, the argument, the logos of God in human form, the eternal son of God, yet human as we are. And what does this say to us? It says, don't lose heart. You're being persecuted today. We're being thought less of. You're watching your friends backslide or deconstruct or leave the church, walking away from the teachings of the New Testament But we ought not to be surprised, even though this is discouraging. It's exactly what the New Testament says would happen. Paul says to Timothy, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. (laughs) I feel like this describes our media age of about the last five or ten years perfectly, right? A time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. But people know what they want to hear, right? And they will find people who who are going to say it. People don't want to be challenged. They don't want to be corrected. They don't want to have the Bible possibly challenge what they think. They instead want to move around into an environment that basically is saying all the things they already want to believe in the first place. Um, Do you know that humans were something like four or five times as likely to believe a false fact if it confirms the biases we already hold, right? So if somebody says a a fact that challenges your worldview, you're like, ah, it's probably not, probably not true. Or, Or rather, not even a fact. If somebody says something untrue, that would challenge your biases. You're like, yeah, no, that's, that's not true. But if somebody says something untrue that like, bolsters all of your bias in the world, you're like, yeah, that sounds right. That sounds pretty reasonable. That's a reasonable fact, even though it's not true. And so in the same way, the New Testament predicts this, that people will gather their own teachers. They'll have itchy ears, and they'll look around, and they'll say, which teacher can I find that's already saying the things that I want to hear and that I believe? But the author says, don't lose heart. Don't fall back. Don't forsake the truth you once held. Just because it's hard, don't stop swimming against the current, even though your muscles may be crying out that it would feel better. Because if you do stop swimming, you'll find yourself in a completely different continent in a few months. Instead, believe, embrace your calling in Christ, bind up your weak knees. Later in the book, the author says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So it seems like some of them had been killed or some of them had been delivered to prison or something, but most of them had not yet undergone persecution, but they're like, it's coming. He's saying you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So I'm actually going to break here for the day. Like I said, I had like 14 pages of notes last week, and there was no way we were going to get through it. So I'm going to split this off here, and then next time we'll take on uh, 
this whole section about the angels that he has. It's confusing. Hebrews is one of the most encouraging, most awesome books in the New Testament. It's also very confusing if you don't have your bearings. Um, so this section on angels is a bit confusing, and we, we won't have time to go through it today. Uh, so let me end here. I'll pray for us. Uh, and then I'd love to invite you guys downstairs for donuts and coffee. We have donuts from Mojo Monkey and, and coffee as well. All right, thank you guys for being with us. I'll pray to, to close us. Father, we thank you for your son, for your word, for calling us out of darkness, um, whether that be a year or two ago or, or 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. Um, Lord, we pray for encouragement in these times when so many people are walking away from the faith, walking away from you, uh, and acting like um, maybe we're making the wrong decision by continuing to follow. Just like these uh, Hebrew believers, Lord, I pray that you would encourage us, help us to find uh, strength to help in time of need. And I pray that these words would wash over us and encourage us uh, during this time. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for this Sunday. And we just pray that you'd be with us uh, this week. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com.